Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. We're your hosts, Hong Yu Xiao and Nimi Augustine. This week, we'll be discussing development policy landscapes domestically and abroad. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bring you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond, B-Y-O-N-D, underscore headlines. Over the past 20 years, 1.2 billion people worldwide have left extreme poverty. While we celebrate this achievement, it is expected that over 500 million people will still be living in extreme poverty in 2030. And wealth inequality is also a significant issue in the world and in Canada. Our guest today will be speaking with us on policy gaps in the anti-poverty sector, both in Canada and abroad, calling for more evidence-based policy development. To speak about global development, our first guest will be Amanda Glassman. Amanda Glassman is Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Centre for Global Development and also serves as the Chief Executive Officer of CGD Europe. Her research focuses on priority setting, resource allocation, and value for money in global health, as well as data for development. She previously served as Director for Global Health Policy at the Centre from 2010 to 2016. When we talk about development initiatives, especially when it comes to poverty alleviation, it's quite a vast topic. Now, what I hope we can address in this interview is how policies can facilitate or even hinder the development progress. And uh, the Center for Global Development has done extensive work in this area. And the goal is when listeners leave this conversation, they're not only more informed, but also are empowered to ask the right questions uh, when it comes to policy decisions made by their government. Because ultimately, citizens have a vested interest, as it is their taxpayer dollars that are in part that funds a lot of these initiatives, projects and programs. So if you're ready, let's dive right into it. Yeah. Um, so can you first uh, explain what is the Center of Global Development? What is it all about? Yeah, so the Center for Global Development, uh, we call ourselves a think and do tank. We're mainly economists. They're people who work on uh, money issues and development, how money flows, where it comes from, is it sufficient, how is it used, does it get good results? So we are nonpartisan, we're independent, we're pretty small, we're about 100 people, and we do both sort of rigorous research of the kind that you know, someone sitting in university would do, but we like to take that research and develop proposals that can actually be implemented in the real world, and we actually try to follow those up and make sure they happen. So then, in your experience, do you see that governments or nonprofits are playing a larger role in development programs? So I think, uh, obviously, governments play a major role in development, both the recipient governments, the governments that are in low- and middle-income countries, but also donor governments. Most of the money in aid or development really does come from governments like the government of Canada, the government of the United States, the government of the United Kingdom. And so that's the bulk of the money. But that said, not-for-profits in the global system obviously play a really important role. They have two kinds of roles in development activities in country. They, they sometimes, sometimes they play like a service role, so they're actually providing direct services. That's organizations like Partners in Health or Care, uh, Save the Children. Or they can also be providing technical assistance or kind of capacity building activities. But a third really important role for not-for-profits is accountability. 
So organizations like our own, a lot of what we do is watch what the big donors do, how they spend their money, and we try to make uh, recommendations for them to improve their effectiveness in, in the way that they spend and the way that that money turns into development outcomes that we all care about. So the CDG has focused on development policies in the UK, EU, and the US. And how do you see Canada playing into that and their role when it comes to development policies worldwide? Yeah, so I think Canada is a really important player, and I wish that they had an even bigger role in development. (laughs) I know that when the first Trudeau government, or the Justin Trudeau government came in, they were very ambitious in terms of the agenda that they were setting out in terms of Canada's uh, contributions to development, particularly in areas like sexual and reproductive health and rights. And I think I've talked with some civil society organizations in Canada as well. I think our perception is that that level of ambition wasn't met by the amount of resources that was dedicated. That's one issue to look at. So Canada could be doing a bit more just financially. We know that I can get you the exact share of GDP that Canada gives to aid, but it's far from the 0.7% of GDP that is part of international agreements on or targets for aid. Mm. And I think, you know, the other thing to say is that Canada brings some unique perspectives on some key issues and a very balanced approach that I would love to see them sharing with the rest of the world even more than they do now. So... One example would be Canada's home to Engineers Without Borders, and I think it's the only NGO that I know about that actually looks at projects that have not worked in aid and Mm -hmm. try and figure out why not. Right. And I don't know, maybe I'm stereotyping because I'm an American, but that seems (laughs) to me to be like a really unique, possibly Canadian trait to really, you know, like recognize, hey, stuff happens and we're going to learn why and we're going to fix it the next time around. So I think that's really interesting. No, um, another example is on sexual reproductive health and rights. You know, Canada, the foreign minister at that time, Christopher Freeland, I, yeah. I don't know if she's um, going to continue, but... She's uh, now deputy prime minister. <laughs> even better. Okay, yeah. well, she set out this feminist foreign policy of which a feminist aid policy, feminist development policy was part of that activity. Right. And it, it really looked at the issue of women's rights and status integrally across the portfolio. That's something that only Sweden had done before. And, right. you know, Canada's obviously a much bigger player geopolitically. And I think they were much more sensible about looking at the whole span of, for example, reproductive health and mm-hmm. rights issues, at the issue of women's economic empowerment. And, they, you know, Canada was really the first that was starting to talk about it. Now it's popular and everyone, everyone's doing it, but Canada was the first. I think there's, there are those kinds of issues. And then I would also say there's a lot of policies that Canada has domestically that the rest of the world could really learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I work a lot in the health sector. And I'm obviously a big admirer of the Canadian health system. Of course, all health systems have problems. But, you know, the way that Canada operates its own health system in a federal way and how the provinces interact with the federal government, there's just a lot to learn from that for low- and middle-income countries. And Mm -hmm. I feel like we could be doing much more than we do now. So uh, those are just a couple of examples. No, I think that's great. And from what I take from that is Canada has the potential to be more of a leader in the sector It's just really that we need to own it and really pursue it. So what are the policies you've seen in either the UK, the EU, or the US that have been quite effective? You know, if we look back, um, one area where Canada has invested heavily is in maternal and child health. Mm -hmm. And one of their strategies has been to provide some funding to the Global Financing Facility for Reproductive Maternal Newborn Child and Adolescent Health Mm -hmm. at the World Bank. 
they were one of the first donors to that fund. And it's sort of a results-based fund, so it puts money out to low-income countries, and it tries to create incentives for healthcare providers to, de- to really deliver the services that will make a difference for people's health. And they just put out their annual report, and they've made an enormous progress in a bunch of countries. So I think that's one you know, specific example of something that's been quite effective. Some other kinds of examples that are interesting is around uh, cash transfers. Right. This is an area where looking at creating a, a sort of proto-safety net for the extremely poor in, in low- and middle-income countries, because many of the extreme poor are really living on very little money per day and, mm-hmm. and aren't really able to even eat the basic nutritional requirements. So that's another area where agencies like UNICEF and the World Bank are investing heavily. They're very well evaluated, and what they show is that just you know a little bit more money enables families to send their kids to school to eat a, an amount of calories that is the basic and uh, enables you know use of basic health care. So those kinds of poverty alleviation programs in which Canada has been part of the intervention have been really effective. I also want to give one example. It comes a bit from our own work on an, in another sector, um, mm-hmm. but that we're really excited that Canada supports and champions, and that is um, one of our colleagues had, had looked at a paper that looked at how in peacekeeping operations, a big issue is that there's an enormous amount of sexual assault and violence. Um, in the recipient communities. Mm -hmm. And they found that every additional female peacekeeper reduced the level of violence in those countries by a a certain percentage with every additional female peacekeeper. So we were trying to look at ways that peacekeeping forces could be, you could have more women, basically, Mm -hmm. to try Mm -hmm. and reduce these terrible things happening. Some, you know, we don't know how it works. Maybe it's just by their presence. We don't really understand, but it does seem to happen. And Canada, in part based on this research, in part based on their own experience, set up something called the ELSI Fund, um, which is a fund to just pay a little extra to the countries that send peacekeepers for women peacekeepers. Okay. And we're going to watch that policy and see if, for those those findings that we found before, really hold that more women peacekeepers are associated with less Mm -hmm. violence and conflict. And that's just an example of uh, a great and interesting policy, you know, that it can be, we'll test it, you know, we hope it promises, its promise is delivered. CDG recognizes that there's a lack of good quality impact evaluations, and that led to the creation of the International Initiative for Impact Evaluation. And so can you explain where these exact gaps exist and what is CGD doing differently to address these issues? Yeah. Well, actually, about a decade ago, we ran a working group to, to look at this issue, and it was called When Will We Ever Learn? <laughs> it makes that, that observation that you're noting and saying, you know, we spend all this money, and, and we really don't know what is working and what is not working. Mm-hmm. And that led to the, to the creation of 3IE, the International Initiative for Impact Evaluation. And that, at that time, the idea was that they would serve as a kind of broker and a hub of knowledge to, to set up a relationship between uh, governments or donors that were running big social programs or big poverty alleviation programs and evaluators who could who could use rigorous tools. Because unfortunately to date, our main model of evaluating programs was two people go to a country for two weeks and talk to a bunch of people and then write up what they think. And that's really different from a more rigorous approach to impact evaluation where there's lots of different ways to do it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a randomized controlled trial, but the idea is to really establish 
actually it was our intervention that made the difference for some development outcome like poverty or whatever. And, you know, the recent uh, win of the Nobel Prize in Economics to Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo and right. Michael Kramer is really about that. It's about using those rigorous approaches to understand what works. And so we're really excited about that. I mean, I would say, however, that about 10 years after that working group and all the great things that have happened, there are definitely more impact evaluations over the past decade than there were the previous decade, mm -hmm. but still only about 10% of total aid budgets are rigorously evaluated in this way. Mm -hmm. Now, no one thinks that we should evaluate all of it that way, but certainly, you know, a bigger share of what we spend, we should know really, does it work or does it not work in a, in a rigorous way? So we're actually going to start another a, a revisit of our working group this coming year to really understand, okay, well, what's going on? Um, why can't we get this approach taken up more systematically? Mm -hmm. There's certainly some institutional exceptions. Like uh, in the U.S., we have this organization called the Millennium Challenge Corporation. And they have been real champions, started to do sort of families of evaluations across their programs. So they would say, okay, we're doing fertilizer and agricultural development programs in six countries. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do a rigorous evaluation of these kind of similar programs in each, and then we can learn across settings. And I think that's, that's really the way of the future. Right. Um, also, you know, the other thing that I think is key with evaluation is you're not just doing it because it's an academic study. You want to do it because you want program design to be better. Mm -hmm. You want to see results go up. You want to see that the money you spent has, is generating the most it possibly can in terms of poverty alleviation or health outcomes or something like that. So that's what we're, we're going to be looking at over the next year. Right. And I, I mean, you said it, it's it's so important. And it's so funny how it's like it, it hasn't been integrated from the very get go. And it took quite a few years for to get it really a comp topic of conversation, because you think that, you know, you're going to put your money towards something, you're going to make an investment, you want to see if it's actually working, how effective it, it is, right? Yeah. Especially if you have a mission and a goal. So it's very interesting to see how CGD is trying to get into that and really trying to expose that issue and, and try and um, come up with solutions in order to better monitor how these programs are rolled out. Absolutely. And I mean, it's really, it's relevant in our domestic policies as well. Mm -hmm. And and there is an evidence and evaluation movement happening in our own countries. I mean, it's you know, how well does the pharmaceutical benefits uh, program of Canada's healthcare system work? You know, are we really looking at how well we're doing on that or not? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's really not just uh, developing countries. It's really kind of a shared agenda of, of understanding what policies work mm -hmm. and what don't. And, of course, it's not so black and white. It's, you know, some things work, some things don't, some things we have to improve. And, and that's the whole point. It's iterative. It's ongoing. Right. But it's about you know, using public monies in the best possible way. Definitely, and I think that's why it's so important for information sharing at the same time, right? Because yep. we all can learn um, both internationally and domestically how we can use these practices. So this is just kind of to, like, to really engage to our viewers. Why should Canadians care about development in poorer countries? So I think, you know, the first reason is uh, a kind of moral and ethical reason, mm -hmm. and I always start with it because I think most of us, have a sense of outreach. If if I you know if I know that uh, let's take HIV/AIDS uh, treatment, and, and I think this this really shows how how people really feel and act when they're confronted with. If if you know that with you know a, a pill, you can prevent 
a death, mm-hmm. um, and that everyone in your country has access to that, and no one in, in the neighboring country has access. That just it feels so unjust. Right. Um, likewise, you know, why should you know children die of uh, totally preventable diseases when we have inexpensive technologies to to address those things, vaccines, for example. So. Um, that, I think that's the first kind of moral and ethical imperative mm-hmm. to just just basic decency, I think, kind of demands that we that we address those injustices. That's one part. But the other part is one that is a complete self-interest story, which is that, you know, if there's a disease outbreak in uh, any country around the world, like what if there's a, another uh, SARS, which is a severe acute respiratory syndrome, what if there's a pandemic flu, which we actually know with almost certainty will happen in the next you know, 50 years or something like that? Mm-hmm. If there's an outbreak there that's not controlled, it's going to spread around the world. That's just how it is. We're all totally interdependent now. Mm-hmm. So making sure that the health system can detect those things, that they can treat it quickly, that they can control spread. So it's like, you know, what they always say, it's like a, an outbreak anywhere is an outbreak everywhere. Right. Right. So I think that's you know that's one piece. The the other thing is you know likewise trading partners, business partners, we're also relying on each other. Climate, um, you know, if, if China, uh, you know, does all the coal investment that they that they plan to do right now, well, the whole world climate is affected by that. So, right. you know, that interdependency that we all have now, I think, is is really crystallizing an agenda that we call global public good. Things that. We all need to happen for all of us to be safe and well. So, right. so I think that's another really important reason for engaging in, in low- and middle-income countries and, and development. No, I think those are, those are all very great answers, and, and I think that's that really that the point of that we are, as much as we may be living in different countries um, and go through different experiences, we are still connected in, in some shape or form, which is why it is ultimately in your interest to to look after one another. Thank you so much, Amanda. No, thanks to you for the opportunity to talk. Once again, that was Amanda Glassman. To talk in greater detail about the importance and uses of data in development policy, our next guest is Ms. Amy Dodd. Ms. Amy Dodd is the Head of Engagement at Development Initiatives, which is based in London, United Kingdom. Before joining Development Initiatives, she ran the UK Aid Network for five years, a coalition of NGOs working on joint policy analysis and advocacy for better and more effective aid and development cooperation. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Could you just explain briefly what Development Initiatives is and what its goals are? Yeah, so we're an independent research institution, basically. So we do lots of research, uh, big focus on data-led research, so really about kind of building the evidence, really about trying to kind of understand, you know, how we can do development better. So how can we use data and evidence to both support policymakers to make better decisions, but also people to advocate for better use of finance within their own country, and also for us, you know, living in the UK, trying to get the UK to use their money as effectively as possible but all really with that objective of ending extreme poverty. When you say uh, better decisions, what do you mean exactly? How can decisions be better? I guess, like I said, because we we think that data and evidence can tell us a lot about what's worked in the past or what's not worked so well as well, actually, because learning from both positive and and negative examples is really important. 
Um, data tells us a lot more about who people are, where they are, what are their needs, We're making sure that we're making better decisions that, that kind of most effectively target the people in the greatest need. Um, that sense, sort of better delivery of policy, better delivery of that objective of aid around ending poverty. I think you mentioned some policies that have worked and some policies that haven't worked. Do you have any examples of what kind of data, when data has shown us when policies work and don't work? Um, I mean, I think there's lots of different sorts of examples. And it's often maybe not quite so black and white as worked or it hasn't. Hmm. Maybe it's more about sort of understanding precisely why something has worked or, or how it has worked most effectively. I think there's a lot of kind of learning and evidence that people try to gather, that institutions try to gather about about what's been the most effective sort of intervention. And if you look across any donor agency, they've got lots of interesting projects that do lots of different sorts of things. That's a good example, particularly impactful. I saw a good write-up actually once by a sort of independent review body in the UK. They were looking at a livelihoods program in the region of India. And they'd really done some interesting things around the program had been really effective because it was both very long running. So it was a 10 year program of work with a long lead in and a long lead out. And they'd really thought about and worked with people to understand what their needs were, to so understand, you know, what's your main form of income? Where can we provide the best support in building and diversifying that income? You know, so they sort of really worked very strongly with local people. They'd really looked at the evidence, they'd really listened to what they were being told, and they built this really effective long term program. There's a lot of different types of data out there. And what kind of data uh, specifically do you think is important or that policymakers should focus on? I guess, I mean, all data is important to some extent or another. <laughs> um, I suppose there's two bits that we at DI really focus on. And the first I've sort of alluded to a little bit already is really data on people. You know, mm. fundamentally, if we're going to end poverty for those people who are most vulnerable or most marginalized, who are the furthest behind, we really need to understand people, particularly the very poorest. Um, right. You know, and actually currently we don't have very good systems in place in many developing countries to capture even the most basic information like births and deaths, for example. Mm. I think something like 55% of unregistered births are in the 20, uh, the poorest 20% of the population. So sort of making sure that we're actually capturing who's there. So when a child is sort of registered, so then they access things like schooling and education and health services and all right. of that. Um, I guess the second bit for us that we really focus on quite strongly is data on financing, sort of on where money goes and, and what sort of resources are being used to fight poverty and sort of how effective they are. You know, there's a, a lot of money out there in the, the global international financial system, whether that's money from governments or multilaterals, philanthropic organizations, um, and just actually the general public who give quite a lot by a charity. So understanding all of that, that kind of full resourcing picture, you know, what's available and what's being used for what and what, what works effectively to deliver what kind of outcomes I think is really important. I just want to... Uh, explore that a bit further. I think that element where you mentioned, you know, in many developing countries, there's a lack of data collection. And often, this issue is hand in hand because you have poor state governance leading to poverty and at the same time, um, leading to the lack of data. So do you see DI as working to improve the state's data collection capacity or working on its own to collect um, data and trying to then help policymakers make sense of that data? a little bit of both. So we certainly do some work in our office in East Africa and some work that we were doing at Nepal is a little bit more about kind of capacity development, but also about enabling people to, to use and access that data. So we focus more on official sources of data because I think those are really critically important. So it's not just data that we collect and we hold, but that you've got data as a kind of public resource that anyone can access and anyone can use, whether you're working for the government, you're a women's rights organization, that you can kind of access the same information and understand what's happening in your country or or globally. So I think, you know, really focusing on, 
using that data, advocating to try and make it better, supporting people to make it better. And then, as you said, that bit about the analysis, making sense of it, what is it telling us? Because uh, you've often got quite big, complicated data sets, instead of using those analysis skills to see what's, what's interesting or what trends are we seeing, what challenges do we see. I, th- I think you say something very interesting uh, with regard to the complicated large data sets that we have. So, I mean, there are two sides of the problem. One side, you have no data. And on the other side, you can have a lot of data. Um, how best do you think policymakers and students can make sense of all that data that is out there? Yes, I mean, you're right. I guess it's, you know, the data use is, is maybe the harder part of that question. Um, you know, not to say that getting better data is an easy part of the question, but, but getting people, getting it really used in kind of really useful and important ways is also challenging. But I guess I'd say a few things that, that we really think about in the data that hmm. that we use. You know, we really look at uh, where is that information coming from? So who collected it? You know, understanding what we've seen, making sure it hasn't been kind of distorted or manipulated. And, you know, knowing where it comes from really helps you to understand the kind of context because data is not context-free. Data is not just not just a piece of information, it does come with kind of context and politics and stuff around it quite often. Um, check how it was collected. It sounds a little boring, but the, the methodology point, you know, right. understanding how that question was asked or, or what people were kind of looking for is really important. I guess the final thing I'd say is, yeah, that data analysis skills, you know, the student being able to kind of look at and manipulate the information and, and understand what it can tell you is really important. And there are lots of people out there you know, like governments or, as you said, students or, or academia or whatever who, who use that. It's a, a skill to be learned, definitely. And I think you've kind of already mentioned this. We're talking about the program designs and programs looking at India. But more broadly speaking, do you see that in your work, the use of data has changed? Or where has it had the largest impacts um, in your work and in your field? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's something we need to see as... Um, a sort of bit of our everyday job, so it's not necessarily sort of, you know, one particular bit I'd say is kind of the most impactful. But maybe a couple of interesting examples. Um, we're currently working on a coalition project around disability data in Bangladesh, Kenda, Kenya, Nigeria, and Uganda. Mm-hmm. So as I said, it's a kind of a collaboration with a range of disability organizations, but where DI is really focusing on finding out what data currently exists or what data is available on people living with disabilities, and then working with those countries on how they can improve that data so that you know, the people in their country, the populations living with disability can access kind of the right support and services. Um, and I think that's you know, potentially really important in terms of you know, changing people's lives. Maybe another is around, you have a program of work around humanitarian assistance, right. the kind of crisis response stuff. There's, well, we do actually a couple of programs of work around that, so around humanitarian assistance or development finance more broadly. But really kind of looking at and using that information to understand what's happening with this kind of financing, what's happening with this sort of spending globally. And that gives us really crucial information, I think, to work with policymakers, to work with governments, to work with other advocates like NGOs and stuff like that to kind of really influence how governments use that money or to seek to influence how they do that or to support them to, to make better policies. I understand that you are in uh, Ottawa right now. Could you perhaps give us a brief description of uh, the work you are doing with the Canadian government and how Canada can be more engaged? Um, yeah, so we're in Ottawa for some meetings and CCIC, who are the Canadian uh, organization of, of NGOs here in Canada who are having the, the big global summit on uh, Wednesday and Thursday. So we have kind of engaged in a few events around that. 
we have a, a large, large program of work with Canada. They support, they provide some grant funding to our humanitarian assistance work. Um, so again, that bit that I was just talking about, about looking at the financing data on what we're spending on kind of the humanitarian appeals and, and crises and things like that. We also engage with them in a more kind of policy discussion level around work on kind of innovative or, or leveraged forms of finance and things like that. Um, we're doing a particularly interesting piece of work at the moment, which we're discussing with them. Um, and again, this is more sort of discussion as opposed to something that they're kind of doing with us, but around, you know, how we work more effectively across the humanitarian development piece. People call it the nexus, but, you know, these pieces where we need to work in a kind of coherent way. So Canada's a big government and a, a pretty big donor, so we work with them across a range of different issues. I think Canada's really interesting with their focus on the feminist international policy. I think that real focus on gender, that's actually a lot around, you know, data and things like that, but also about how do we have much more effective development policy in terms of reaching women who are often behind of being marginalized area. Uh, how could Canada do better? I guess it'd be great to see Canada increase their aid spending. That's definitely something that would be interesting. But actually, in general, Canada is, you know, a pretty progressive donor. They think pretty hard about targeting their aid at kind of the people most in need or the countries most in need. Um, I think there's definitely, you know, always some things that we could do better and we could kind of dig a little yeah. deeper and try and understand how we could be more effective about that. But, yeah, I guess I'd say the, the very short answer is, you know, more money never hurts. And yeah. So a little bit more aid would be great. And so I think we've, we've spoken a bit about how data can be used and the need to use it more effectively. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the limitations of uh, data and how can we overcome those limitations? Yeah, so and I suppose this sort of goes back to what I was talking about before. I mean, maybe one of the, the first ones is around the quality of the data. You get data coming from lots of different sources, some of which are, are more or less rigorous in, in how it's collected and, and how it's kind of held. So, you know, making sure that we get good data um, is always a little bit of a challenge. You know, it isn't always possible to have kind of perfect, rigorous, triple-checked information, so that's definitely an issue. And I guess it goes back to what I was saying before about the need to kind of invest more in, you know, basic data systems. We need much better basic information on people. Uh, the second is sort of accessibility. There's a lot of data out there that just isn't published uh, or isn't published in a public and kind of accessible format, which would definitely... I think make quite a difference. You know, information is only as useful as, as what it's used for, right? Yeah. Data is just a spreadsheet with some, some information and numbers on it potentially. So being able, people being able to access that, do something with it. And I guess, again, the third comes back to our kind of ability to, you know, it's an area where we really need to invest in kind of skills and training. An ability to kind of understand what the data is telling us. Like I was saying before, data isn't always neutral or can be presented, I should say, in ways that are more or less neutral. So really investing in skilling people up who can kind of make sense of that and translate it into something meaningful that kind of gives insight to their work or to influencing decision makers, I think is really key. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, have a good one. Once again, that was Miss Amy Dodd. Our third guest will speak about Canada's contributions in international development efforts. Arjun Dahan is the Director of International Development Research Center's Inclusive Economies Program. He leads a multidisciplinary team that strengthens policy research capacity in developing countries on issues of economic policy, governance, and health systems. So thank you once again for speaking with us, Ariane. Thank you. Uh, can you explain the International Development Research Center's mission and, and what they do? Uh, yes, and thanks again. Uh, IDRC, uh, Canada's International Development Research Center, is part of Canada's International Development uh, Program. 
And uh, we're not part of the, the ministry, but we were set up as a separate organizations uh, by government mandate since 1970. And what we have done since over the last almost 50 years is to support research for development and particularly to support researchers in uh, developing countries uh, to help build up the capacity and to support good evidence to help solve development problems in those contexts. Wow. Um, and so in the past decade, um, we've seen significant reductions in extreme poverty, but um, these reductions are concentrated in, in few countries. And what do you think are the main challenges for anti-poverty programs in the next decade? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. What what we see is that those uh, those problems evolved over the time that, uh, that IDRC has been in existence. Here is where we believe research like that supported by IDRC has a big role to play to figure out exactly what these causes are, what the trends are, and to test what responses uh, work. Research that we support in those, uh, in those cases, I would say, have three uh, dimensions. First of all, uh, it puts people's needs at their center, uh, people's uh, uh, vulnerabilities, rights, and aspirations uh, in their diversities, including of, of gender and age and, and ethnicity, of course. Uh, and for example, in research in post-conflict context, we stress that uh, the, vo the voices of victims need to be uh, heard and thereby creating the knowledge, new knowledge uh, about reparations and justice for, for survivors, of, of, uh, particularly of women and, uh, and of children. In those contexts, we stress uh, the need for uh, that research uh, to be driven by local researchers and and of course this is core to the mandate of uh, of IDRC uh, and this is particularly important in contexts where international development agencies play a, a very important role and our support helps these researchers to explore uh, new data sources new tools for analysis uh, and and particularly in contexts where data gathering and analysis are are difficult and, and, and finally, what I would, would, would emphasize with that, we strongly believe that we need to support, strengthen the national institutions in those, uh, in those fragile contexts, in those porous contexts, uh, uh, including building up the capacity of, of uh, research institutions that produ produce that evidence for, uh, for new policies, and, and also, for example, the National Research Council, so, so that over time, uh, countries, those countries can increasingly take ownership of those uh, policy agendas and, and from our perspective particularly to develop the evidence and, uh, and research for that. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned some of the challenges in gender, uh, the institutions, and actually IDRC's capacity to help mitigate any of these challenges. How, how has the IDRC been able to do that? Right, thank you. Yeah, I, I think the first thing to say very importantly is that there are no silver bullets uh, for this. As we know in, in Canada, and I know from my own home country in, in the Netherlands, uh, addressing poverty in a sustained way are long-term processes, and, and they need, need political commitment. Those problems uh, never go away, unfortunately. So as you mentioned, IDRC has some 50 years of experience now in these areas, and if there's some uh, examples that I can choose from broad area of, 
of work, I would first of all mention program on uh, on gender equality, particularly focused on women's economic empowerment that we implemented uh, with uh, the UK's Department for International Development and uh, and the US-based Hewlett uh, uh, Foundation. And that uncovered uh, very specific barriers that women need to address to, to participate in fair manners in the economy. And, and the particular results from that were, for, to, to give some example, was from uh, was in was was actually in, in Nairobi, where our, uh, the research that we supported tested what the benefits can be of publicly provided childcare for women in poor uh, in, in low income uh, low income neighborhoods, and and that showed very clear results in terms of women's improved participation in the labor market, improved learning of children, and so on. And those results are, are really important in context where there is there are very few opportunities for women and where there are very few policies that, that are starting to, uh, to, to address those. The last thing I, I, I would say what remains very important, and partly coming back to this, this point that there are no silver bullets, is that, that many of the solutions to, to addressing poverty, deep poverty, are multidimensional. And many of the policies mm-hmm. are, are typically based in, uh, in, in one ministry. So, so in our work on health, for example, we've come to the realization and we start work with local agencies that look at both health and violence. So, for example, in Nigeria, we support an intervention in the health sector that led to a reduction in domestic violence during pregnancy by 20%. And, and one of the innovations uh, in that was that within the health sector, during visits to, to health centers by, by pregnant women, how important it was to improve the communication between the partners within, uh, within the household. So, so the reason I'm mentioning this is that, that, that the innovation there where the research contributed to it was to introduce in the health sector implementation elements uh, that, that were really important to, to addressing development challenges, particularly on, on gender, that, that without that research would uh, unlikely to be implemented. Um, and if I can uh, turn your attention to uh, climate change, um, we've seen it on in the headlines. It's becoming an increasing issue, especially when it uh, comes to combating poverty. And you were talking about how um, poverty has been uh, evolving. And do you see climate change exacerbating the issue itself? I, I, absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, uh, climate change uh, will exacerbate those uh, those challenges. When we talk about increasing number of people living in fragile contexts, this this can be driven by by political problems, but also very much by climate. Uh, in terms of poverty, uh, this is absolutely the case that uh, that the world's poorest. Uh, uh, suffer most from this. This means both the poorest uh, in uh, in the global north, as as we've seen with flooding in the U.S., for example. Typically, uh, the most vulnerable communities suffer uh, suffer most. And and I dare see uh, over the next ten years, this will be uh, absolutely one of our priorities to see how we can contribute to addressing this uh, this global development challenge. And in that, we're building on 
experience in, in this area over the last 10 years, and this was a program that we implemented in collaboration with the UK Department for International International Development. We, we have supported uh, the research and the building up of capacity to understand the impact and to predict the impact of climate change in, in what, we, what we called hotspots. These were uh, areas in, in the world where the impact of climate change uh, uh, was, was largest or will be uh, will be largest, uh, for example, because of seawater uh, sea uh, levels rising or because of uh, vulnerabilities in, in the large mountain uh, ranges in, uh, in the world. So, so we did two things there. One was to, to help build up the capacity that, that, that brings the awareness and brings the capacity to start predicting what might happen and what policies are needed as, as climate change will continue and will have a larger impact. For example, uh, uh, measures of, of adaptation that look at the impact of temperature rising or sea level water risings on, on crop productivity and to see what technologies uh, and what institutions to, uh, to, to, to manage those, uh, those, those crops can uh, can, can help uh, address those, and 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 that in 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 a number of countries has reached ten thousand tens tens of thousands of, of farmers already uh, to 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 help address those changes. One of the things that that's absolutely critical is is to ensure that health policies are taking into account the impact of uh, of climate change because of rising temperatures. Uh, uh, th th there are new uh, new infections that 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 are arising, and and health sectors cannot uh, cannot rest with addressing the, the the old health problems, which which in many cases are are already big enough, but also need to start to be prepared for for the challenges that that will arise in that sector. So then, um, because IDRC is part of uh, executing um, and implementing a lot of programs, when there are some consequences that come out of some of them. What, what, how do you mitigate those, uh, those consequences with some of the programs that, that when they arise? Right. No, absolutely. The very, very important question. Our research is focused on, on, on finding the best possible methods uh, to understand what works and for, for, for what groups. And we do that through, through many uh, different, uh, different methods. Uh, we support, for example, randomized control trials that look at uh, what an I the impact of an intervention is for a particular group compared to a group that, that does not benefit uh, from, that, uh, from that intervention. And, of course, as you know, this, this, uh, this method has been introduced over the last 20 years, and, uh, and, and uh, the contributors of that recently received the Nobel Prize in Economics. And we also emphasize that it's very important to make sure that, that when we assess the impact of particular interventions, that we also make sure that the, the voices of the people that, that benefit from this are, are included, so, so that the needs as they see them are clearly, uh, clearly expressed, uh, that they uh, express uh, the, the the possible unintended consequences, the pros and benefits from uh, from from any uh, any policy or project that is uh, that is tried. So the idea is rather than introducing uh, immediately introducing uh, an intervention, which is which is very important, uh, like like bed nets at, at a, a large scale, that you first introduce it at a smaller scale and test out what works, what doesn't work, and what what those unintended consequences will be. So and and also gives you 
uh, a clear example of how cost effect effective that research uh, may be, because the cost of getting poli policies wrong, of course, is, is, is enormous. It's a loss in the investment, and, and, and it may have uh, other negative effects, like to say overfishing, uh, overfishing as well. Absolutely. So when you know better, you do better. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, thank you so much, Ariane. We appreciate you just squeezing us in because we know you have a very busy schedule. No, absolutely. Thank you, and thank you to, to the program for, uh, for, for including this in your program. It's great. Thank you. Once again, that was Ariane Dahan. Our last guest will discuss policy developments in Ontario to address developments and the urban-rural divide. Lorenzo and Wasim are independent researchers at Ontario 360, a think tank based in the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. They have recently written a paper on the possible uses of opportunity zones in Ontario to address the urban-rural divide. Wasim Lorenzo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Recently written this paper on opportunity zones. Could you just give a brief summary? What are opportunity zones and how can they be used in Ontario? Opportunity Zones is a new economic development program in the U.S. It was established in 2017. The purpose is to spur economic activity in economically distressed areas through tax incentives. So if a taxpayer has uh, capital gains, they're eligible to put it into an opportunity zo a fund, okay. which the fund then invests in designated areas across the U.S. This fund will be made up of taxpayer money? Is it a fund administered by the Ontario government? It, it's a, a bit complicated just to replicate it in Ontario. So it would, it would have to go undergo some interprovincial and federal collaboration okay. just because uh, capital gains is set by, the, by Ottawa. Right. So the province would have to communicate and collaborate with the federal government and come to an agreement because of the tax collection agreement. Right. that the provinces have with the federal government and it's an establish either a made in Ontario opportunity zone model or just roll it out across the country and oh. of course uh, the Ontario one would be the one that the province of Ontario would uh, administer basically it's a investment vehicle right that has to have 90% of its assets in designated areas right and when these areas are de typically designated by, uh, in the U.S., it was designated by the, the governors of each state. And it was like low-income areas that typically lacks jobs and people aren't investing there. And as a way to like spur economic activity, they decided to create these zones. In Ontario, we are thinking that it would be great if it was used in, to alleviate some of the regional imbalances. And some of, uh, as Wasim has studied, like some of the socioeconomic issues that are affecting uh, Ontario right now, which we, we believe could be uh, tackled through opportunity zones. So, Wasim, could you explain some of these regional disparities and income areas that Lorenzo was just talking about? Sure. So, when you look at the province on a macro level, so the whole province as sort of one unit, yeah. it would look like that the province is doing actually very well in terms of socioeconomics. We've generated hundreds of thousands of jobs over the past decade. Uh, incomes are rising in a lot of places. But when we really dig down into different regions, then we start to see a huge divergence across the province. And this can be everything from education to healthcare outcomes to household incomes. Right. So one of these 
divergences in the province between rural and urban areas is in job creation and wealth as well. So we see that the province has added hundreds of thousands of jobs in the past decade, but 76% of them have gone to Toronto alone. And keep in mind, Toronto is only half of the province's population. Another 12% has gone to Ottawa. Another handful went to the rest of the province's cities. And if you're part of a, a region in the province that is not uh, urbanized, so rural part, you actually most likely lost jobs over the course of the decade, despite hearing that the province is doing so well economically. Mm-hmm. So this is where the idea of opportunity zones comes in. We have a lot of investors who are investing in the market, but urban centers tend to outcompete rural areas. And we see that in foreign direct investment as well. The level of investment coming from foreigners into the province has remained relatively constant over the past 15 or 20 years. But what has changed since 2009 is that we see that the allocation of that money is shifting from previously rural areas, for example, in mining sectors, to Toronto, Kitchener-Waterloo, and Ottawa. So to sort of bring back this competitiveness to the non-Toronto parts of the province, we need to make them more attractive, and this is where the tax incentives of Opportunity Zones comes in. So if you invest in these rural areas, you don't have to pay capital gains tax on those investments? The way it works in the U.S. is that if it, it's trying to promote long-term private investment, right? So patient capital. Uh, so if a taxpayer puts their unrealized capital gains into the fund for five years, okay. they receive a 10% step-up basis on, on their original amount. Then if they keep it for seven years, they receive an additional 5% to, for a total of 15 And if they keep it for 10 years, then they don't have to pay any capital gains on the new new capital gains from the gains that they originally invested. So yeah, the benefits are uh, deferral, reduction, and exemption for the 10 years, exactly. How do you think would be the way to identify uh, which areas should be opportunity zones? Right. Uh, Lorenzo, can you speak a little bit to how the U.S. has designated their areas? And then maybe we can sort of transfer that to an Ontario context. Well, in the U.S., it's, it's been based on uh, low-income areas. So based on census tracts that are designated as low-income, the Treasury Department told the governors, here's over 40,000 uh, low-income areas across the country, and you can designate up to 25% of those areas that are within your, your state. If that would happen in Ontario, it would mostly, that would mostly be towards like places specifically in ru- rural places that are underperforming, that are not attracting the jobs and uh, probably see a lot of migration. Of course, we, we believe that they would have to take a lot of uh, research and planning for us to replicate the model. But the whole premise of uh, our paper is that it is an experiment that is running in the U.S., and so far we've seen that it has been able to harvest unrealized capital gains from these, these investors. And why not try something new? Because place-based policies, uh, they've produced mixed results. So why not try something new? Uh, you've mentioned some of the results that we've seen in the U.S. from this policy. Could you explain that? What kind of results have we seen? Since... There isn't no mandatory tracking. We, we don't know the specific amount of funds that exist, but there's like low estimates that put them at like 187 funds, which are managing a potential uh, investment capacity of $44 billion US. 
And what kind of investments have we seen uh, been made in these opportunity zones? So to date, primarily, it has been uh, towards real estate. Okay. But we, we are also seeing investments in operating businesses, in uh, manufacturing, in green energy, and also like in affordable housing. Regarding the fact that it, most of the investment has happened in uh, real estate, many uh, people believe that the reason why is because there was an issue with the slow rollout of regulation. So due to that, real estate developers and investors knew easily understood how they could take advantage of the program and capitalize on the tax incentives. However, individuals that wanted to like invest in operating business or business incubation, for example, uh, it, they weren't that certain. So it, since the rollout was a bit slow, they, those investments didn't go in, in those assets. Just to add to that, there's also social investing as well, right, Lorenzo, where the investments can actually be targeted towards social initiatives in a, an underdeveloped area. And in many parts of the province here in Ontario, especially in indigenous communities, we have this issue where there's inadequate infrastructure, poor drinking water, lack of schools. So these uh, opportunity zones would also be beneficial to spur development across these regions of the province. Yes, we've seen investment in real estate. We've seen it in infrastructure, also like affordable housing, social programs. There's mm -hmm. like a, a, some not-for-profit are also participating in opportunity zones, such as the Rockefeller Center and other like big not-for-profits which are trying to make sure that the Opportunity Zones program stays true to, to some social impact investment. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about the investment between rural areas and urban areas. Sure. Why do you think there has been this mismatch of investment uh, between both areas? There are several reasons, but the underlying cause of this is that urban areas are much more competitive than rural areas. So urban areas, for example, you will find that roughly half of all educated people in the province are in the largest cities across the province, in Ontario. And half of graduates are in Toronto alone. So when you're a firm looking to open up or, or you need, or your Toyota or whichever factory needing a, a labor force, you go towards where the talent is. And this talent simply exists in urban centers. And because of this now, there's a sort of self-selection bias for people to leave rural areas to urban centers. So the ones who can end up leaving. These are the youth generally, the ones who have more potential. So they leave for education, they leave for jobs, and they essentially are better able to adapt to this changing economy. The ones who get left behind are the ones who are more suited towards rural settings. And simply put, it's just not as competitive as Toronto, Ottawa, or Waterloo. And why do you think that uh, opportunity zones can address that imbalance between talent and infrastructure that, that you just right. described? Yeah, good question. So because urban centers are more competitive, there's a high return on investment for anybody who's looking to invest in starting a business, for example. Now, when we introduce opportunity zones to rural areas, this lowers the difference between rural and urban settings. So... The benefits of opportunity zones, mainly the, the tax-free income or the, the lack of tax on your capital gains, in theory should be enough or can be enough to offset the additional benefits one would get from investing in urban centers. Yeah, I, I think it's important to mention that uh, so capital gains, especially the, while we're targeting the capital gains, has, suffers from the lock-in effect, which when 
people invest in something, they they don't pay taxes on that on those gains until they sell it. So often investors prefer not to sell their assets and they just keep accruing uh, th- those gains. And in theory, it, it doesn't produce like efficient um, allocation of capital because where people could be putting that money somewhere else, but because they don't want to pay the taxes, they just keep it in in their current investments. What would success of this policy look like to you? I'll start off on this one. So I wouldn't, in looking at just from an urban-rural divide perspective, I'll leave the opportunity zones to Lorenzo to answer. So from the urban-rural divide perspective, success to me would look like a closing of this gap. Right now what we're seeing is sort of an acceleration, a widening of urban and rural divide in the province and really across Canada, to be honest. So we see, for example, every census, there's more people leaving rural Ontario and entering urban Ontario. We see income starting to diverge, especially for men, uh, between different ruralities. We see the education gap shrinking. In the most isolated parts of the province, over half of the half of residents uh, have dropped out of high school. There's more people with without a degree, without a high school degree than with one. And so success would look like a reversal of these trends. So more education, more opportunity, increased wages, increased household income. No, I, I think you answered that perfectly. An important metric to consider that if we're able to push economic activity and also help improve the lives of people that are within these distressed areas, that would be the the greatest success possible. And uh, even just paying attention to these areas is significant because for a long time, they've they've just been ignored. So might as well we consider that enacting policy that targets uh, these areas is is in itself like something good because we can we learn from these policies that are enacted. Right. Okay. Um, well, this has been a very interesting discussion. Uh, thank you both for joining us and talking about your paper with Beyond the Headlines. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Once again, that was Lorenzo Gonzalez and Wasem Ahmed. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the development policy landscapes domestically and abroad. Today's show was produced by Hong Yu Xiao and Nimi Augustine. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. If you are a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond, B-Y-O-N-D, underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. <laughs>